Before I start, I make one announcement about the uh, Christmas break. The students will be leaving after the Monday night meeting next week. We will have a meeting next week. But following that, uh, we'll be off for a couple weeks. So just for those that might be here tonight and might miss it, uh, we won't have a meeting after next week for a couple weeks until they return. So I'll have the dates for that next week. But just to alert you that that is coming up. All right, well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we come and commit ourselves into your hands. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that though you're high, you have respect for the lowly. And we come as those that are lowly, Father, and in great need of deliverance, in great need of help. We thank you that you have made that available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see you tonight. To understand your ways. To gain confidence in your person so that we can look to you for salvation in every respect. Come and trust you for it. And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah are a messianic poem. That poem we have seen already is divided into three sections, nine chapters apiece. We have been in that first section. We are going to finish that first section tonight. Um, I know that as we've been going through there, there's a good bit of repetition because that's the nature of the book of Isaiah. He goes around a subject and around a subject and around a subject, adding as he goes, developing a picture. And so you have to look at the detail. You also have to step back and look at the overall picture. And we've been thinking about this particular section now for quite some time, but we want to sum it up tonight. Now, we still have five chapters to go, and so I can't do that in a summary. I can't read all that, at least. I'm going to do it, but we can't do it by reading it. I want to read one part, which is typical of what's going on, which is helpful for what we're going to be considering tonight. In chapter 44, chapter 44, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he's speaking to Israel, the one who formed you from the womb. That is, he's the one who created the nation and has been with him right from the very beginning. I, the Lord, and I'm, I'm going to read as I go through here, Jehovah for the Lord, because he, he's contrasting himself with all of the different idols that are out there. And Jehovah is his name. That's, that's the one that he gave himself to be, to be presented. So he says, I, Jehovah or Yahweh, however you want to think about but we'll call him Jehovah tonight. I, Jehovah, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of of his messengers. It is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. All right, now remember that he's talking about a time after they've been destroyed, after they have been taken captive, and the city has been, the temple's been destroyed, the city's been destroyed. But he says, this is, this is what you have to know. It is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. 
It is I who says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. The first section of the book of Isaiah is all about the greatness of God. That's, that's, in a sense, that's the theme. It's spoken to us because we need to hear this because of the dilemma of the human heart, the problem that we have. And so, overall, what have we seen? Well, in a, at the beginning of your notes there, it says there are central themes, and these are the central themes that we have been considering different ways, and I want to recap them tonight to remind us of what we have seen. First of all, he speaks about the eternity of God as opposed to the fading glory of the human race. Is part of the, the description there. It started in Isaiah chapter 40. The, not just the power of God, but the eternity of God. I am, he says in this section, I am the first and the last. I was before the beginning and I'll be there at the end. There is no one else that can claim that. There is nothing else that has been there throughout the whole thing. I am eternal. In contrast to that, he says, you, as a human race... And he's speaking to us. God is he's talking to us right here. You are very, very temporal. And he wants a person to understand that. You remember that the beginning of the gospel in chapter 40, the first thing to, that a person has to grasp as a human race, because of the problem we're in, because of the bent of the human heart, the first thing we have to grasp is that all flesh is grass. And so that's where he's been. All flesh is grass. What does he mean by that? You go out there and it's the fall. It's the winter. There aren't flowers blooming. In the spring they will bloom. And they will be there. If you take any particular kind of flower, they're not there very long. They come up. They bloom. They're done. That's their job is to bloom, produce, produce seeds, and go on. But they come and they go. And he says that concerning the human race, the first thing he wants to get clear is that the human race, everything about it, is coming and going. It no sooner gets established in its greatness and it disappears. Whether you're talking about individuals, like us, or you're talking about groups, or you're talking about nations, he says all flesh, everything has to do with this is grass. But as in contrast to that, there's been this great truth that God is from the beginning, He's to the end, and He is unchanging in all this. God knows nothing of the fatigue that you and I know. He knows nothing of the boundaries of time that we know. He knows nothing of that. And so that was the first great theme that is discussed in the book. So we got that one out there. The second thing that He has, that which parallels that, is the greatness of God the greatness of Jehovah, as opposed to the lifeless idols. Right? And he's, he spends a lot of time in these nine chapters talking about idolatry and the stupidity of idolatry. Now, that is an extension of the, the dilemma of the human race. Because we're in a dilemma, because we are dying, and because we're facing a difficult world, we have to have something to trust in, and so we create gods. And the whole section is about this. Stop and think about it. The God that you've created is, is an imagination. 
It is something you have you have made, and then you are looking to it, this imaginary God, to somehow come to life and do for you what you want it to do. Now, again, I won't call it an imaginary God, but I remember, <laughs> I remember being a very little kid, and I don't how, remember how little, but I was in the upstairs of our house in Wexford, Pennsylvania. It had snowed. It was Christmas Eve, and I was still little enough to still believe that out there, maybe, if I could just somehow stay awake. I mean, the snow is there this time. That that man's going to appear, that those I'm going to see it. And I can still remember looking out that window and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally I fell asleep. A little kid, you know, they fall asleep anyway. But the point is this. It's an invention of the human heart, and yet... Here I am as a little kid, I'm doing just exactly what big people do. You create a God that isn't there, and then you look for Him to do what you want Him to do. And you're disappointed He doesn't show up. Why didn't He show up? Because He doesn't exist. Again, I know that's a touchy subject, but He doesn't exist, right? right? (laughs) You've made Him up, and then you're asking Him to do something for you. Now, Back to the, it's, he's not, I'm not thinking here in terms of idolatry, but that's exactly what people do. And that's what he pictures here. You have to have something to trust in. If you're not going to trust in God, <laughs> then the real God that's out there, you make an image of God. And I want to say that we have already seen, I want to remind you because we're summing us all up. Every person in this room has a tendency to do this with respect to the true and living God. You remake him in your own image. We saw that last week. See, an idol is when I make God in my image. I bend down and I shape him instead of accepting the fact that he's the one that bent down and shaped me, according to the book of of Genesis. And then I try to breathe life into that. And the whole time he says that here I am, the God of glory. I am out here. And I am letting you know that I'm out here. How is he letting us know that he's out here? Well, there's two things. Again, this is all summation, but there's two things he says. What's one of them? First one is this. Take a look. Look at the stars. Look up. Look at what's around you. You can look up or you can look down, either one, and you'll still see the greatness of God. Because as you go into the detail of the intimate or the, the smallness of this world, you find out it's, it's elaborate down there too. It's elaborate up this way and it's elaborate down that way. And I don't know where it's at right now, but I remember that, uh, when I was in college studying chemistry they told me that at that time in order of magnitude the biggest things we could see and the smallest things that we could see put the human race right in the center and that interesting right in the center of it is where we live so you can as far down as you can look until you run out of capacity to see you see greatness and as you look up you see greatness and god put it there for a reason to alert us to the fact that He is the great God that actually is there, that there's someone to know who is there. The second thing we saw, though, is He spoke. He spoke. You ever hear anybody say, you know, you know they're, they're alerting you, they're saying something, and you look up, and say, oh, yes, I'm speaking to you. Yeah, that's kind of God tonight. Yes, I'm speaking to you. All right, this is it. And in that speaking, he says, this is the word. And in this section, he has the greatness of God is revealed in the fact that he's given a word. But that word is just words on a page. Um, Anybody can write words on a page. 
right? And so what he says is, in this section particularly, is I want you to know that the words on this page are true words. And here's how I'm going to demonstrate it to you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I am going to tell you my plan, and I'm going to outline it from the beginning all the way through. And I'm going to tell you details about how I'm going to carry it out. And when it comes to pass, then you'll know that I am indeed God. That's why tonight fulfilled prophecy is a huge part of the reason why we believe in this word. Because there is nothing like the Bible besides it on the face of the earth. There is no other book that you can lay beside it that begins to touch us the way this does because of what it has in it. And again, if you want to go and look at them, I would challenge you to go ahead and read them. Read the Koran. Read the other books. Read the Book of Mormon. Again, you say, well, that's just a crazy thing to watch. Why? It's empty. I hate this, but it's empty. And you'll find out that it's empty compared to this. Because over a long period of time, through a whole host of writers, God said, I'm going to do this, and he did it. I'm going to do this, and he did it. And I'm going to do this, and he did it. That's to get our attention. That's not just to... to Thrill us with fulfilled prophecy and oh, isn't it, you know, what kind of other interesting thing we find out? It's to tell us that there is a God out there. And so that's one of the themes of this book is that in, in speaking that way, there is the greatness of God as opposed to the idols that we create. And again, I want to warn you, this is a temptation of the human heart is you don't like the God you meet there for some reason. And you reconstruct God in your own image. And then someday you're going to come and you're going to call on that God that you recreated to save you, and he won't do it. And then you're, this is what happens. They recreate Then we recreate it. And then we blame the God who was named Jehovah for not being what you told him he ought to be. Isn't that strange? That's the human race. I'm not talking about you particularly. And I know that for the most part we are people who have, have attempted to, to submit to what it says there. But be cautious of that. He is who he is. And that's part of what this book of this section of Isaiah says. He, I am the one who did this. I am the one who is out there. The third thing is this, that the God who is out there has saving power. Now, what does that mean? What do we talk about saving power? Save from what? Human beings, he says here, there's two great dilemmas that we have. This is what we've been seeing. One is that we're dying. We're <laughs> flesh is grass. We're headed towards the grave. And... There isn't one person in this room tonight who doesn't know that that's wrong. There's nothing quite as wrong as a funeral. You know it, I know it. Your heart gets torn apart. Things that were meant to go on don't go on. And somehow we know that death is wrong. But there's another problem with this. And and we don't want to ever miss this one. That we've all accumulated sin. And dying in sin is the worst thing that could possibly happen to a human being. I mean, it is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. It is the motivation for me as I stand here to do this. I think, Lord, somehow give me a capacity to get to the hearts of people because I'm speaking to people, some of whom may be headed towards that event of death and still have that sin upon them which if they go through this experience will plunge them into an eternal mess 
to an eternal judgment which is unspeakably bad and the eternal God cries to us <laughs> and says you know what I'm here and I'm ready to save the reason he wants to get our attention with the stars and the word is because he is ready to deliver the people who have rejected him from their dilemma how about that it's one of the great two we serve the greatest God that is portrayed on the face of the earth there is no one like him a God who holds to the standard and yet pays the price, will not compromise with regards to sin, but in the greatness of his being is willing to absorb his own punishment so that you can go free and I can go free. What a God. What a God. That's what he's saying. And that's in contrast to everything else that you could be trusting in to help you out. And that's where that's where the book goes. Now, you know, that's the main themes. We've seen those. I don't want to take too much longer with that. But now I want to go into two applications or two illustrations he has at the end of the book that show how this all works out. They just they're two stories. Isaiah is speaking about a hundred years. We have to face it up about a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the city of Jerusalem. Approximate. We don't know the exact date of this book or this section. So, but it's approximately a hundred years before that. A hundred and fifty years from that date, the um, Babylonian Empire will be overrun by the Persians, the Medes, and the Persians. Isaiah is going to speak about both of those peoples, the Babylonians and the Persians. 150 years before the events, so that you can know and I can know that he's in control. That he has a plan, that he's working it out. So he uses those two groups as illustrations. Now, tonight we are not going to take them in the order that they appear in the Bible. And again, that's just because I think... Again, when you're going round and round, it's easier for us going straight line. We go kind of straight line. We like to keep on the straight line. So it's easier for us to take them in the historic order than to take them in the order that the the illustrations in the order that they are in the Word of God. So let me just start by describing and telling you some important things concerning Babylon. All right, that, that fill out because Babylon is a very important concept not just a place, but a concept in the in the Word of God. Babylon sits where the Tower of Babel was built. Right? Tower of Babel, that's kind of where we get that thing. The Tower of Babel was a place where the human race at the very beginning decided that they didn't like God's plan to spread out, and they decided we would stick together. And there was a spirit that starts in there in the human race, a desire to stick together for our own glory. Instead of do what God wants us to do. To stick together for our own glory. Later on, a man named Nebuchadnezzar became the head of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was a a fabulous empire, but it only lasted for 70 years. And uh, again, I will... It's just interesting that that God let let it live for 70 years. Because it's kind of picturesque of the whole human race. And we get about 70 years. That's what the Bible says. We get about 70. And they got about, he got about 70. Or he didn't personally get 70, but the Babylonians got about 70. And Nebuchadnezzar built that small area. It was a, it was a pretty good city, but it was, 
He built it into an empire very rapidly. Now, how did he build it into an empire rapidly? Book of Isaiah tells us he built it into that because God motivated and he gave him the energy for that. We could go to the book of Habakkuk to see that that's the way it is. We could go to the book of Jeremiah to see that's the way it is. We could go to the book of of, um, Ezekiel to see that's the way it is. And we could find it in this book that God is going to, he's going to give them the opportunity. Nebuchadnezzar is not, we'll go to the book of Daniel, which we'll talk about in just a moment. All of them say the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar rose to the capacities he had because God decided he was going to. I'm going to, do, I'm going to turn it over to them. But when he did, he built a city which must have been fabulous. All right? It was interesting as I was reading through this afternoon and I was trying to find a picture of, of, of where the city of Babylon sits. I finally found one, but as I was reading through, one of the men said this about it, and this, this also becomes important to us. He said that anyone, everyone except for the biblical writers speaks about Babylon with awe. Everybody but the biblical writers speak about the city of Babylon with a sense of awe. It was a fabulous place. Um, and he built it very rapidly. Little wonder that there came a point when you think about human beings, when you think about a man who who very young, when he was very young, when he wins his first military victory, moves into this place of prominence, propels Babylon to this extremely important position, and builds a city which is filled with temples. Again, the Hanging Gardens were one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. Eight, the eight layers of this thing. Now, that's an ancient world. Eight layers up, built into the... It was a mountain that they had built. But we don't know anything about what it looks like. You know why we don't know what it looks like? Because it's not there. It's not there. But anyway, Babylon is, is pictured there. Now, you'll remember also from the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, after he becomes king, has a dream. That's one of the key prophecies, in a sense, of the, of the word of God. And his, his thoughts are this. What's going to happen after I'm gone? That was the question. What's going to happen? What's, how's the future going to play out? He knew where he was. He knew the greatness of his own kingdom. But what was going to come next? And then, of course, there is the story of Daniel interpreting. But remember what we read tonight? That story is real important with regards to Isaiah. He said, I'm the one who makes the, the diviners fools. Right? That was in chapter 44. I'm going to make the diviners fools. And I'm going to confirm the word of my prophets, of my men. All right? I'm going to confirm their word. And, of course, when that situation came up, all the wise men, the divine men of, of Babylon could not interpret that dream because they didn't know what it was. See, they had to know the dream first in order to interpret it, which is you would think would be normal, but Nebuchadnezzar is kind of suspicious of these guys that they're making stuff up. All right? So if you're good enough to interpret it, then you're probably good enough to find out what it is. And then lo and behold, Daniel does it. God confirms the word through him. So everything it says here in the book of Isaiah is going to happen. That's, that's another one of those indications. They're one of those places where it works out. But what we want to think about next about uh, Babylon is this. They were raised up by God. But their gods couldn't keep them. They couldn't protect them. And I want to read a section here. It's a little bit complicated to 
to understand. I'll just be honest with you. It's it's a hard one to, to get the symbolic language kind of uh, loses here. Chapter 46, it starts off here. Bellas bow down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beast, the cattle, and the things that you uh, things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. Now, here's what's happening here. Is a picture. It says, Bell. Bell is another name for the key god of power of the Babylonians. His name is Marduk. Bell Marduk. All right? It's, there was a big gate there in the city of Babylon to Marduk. All right? The other god that is mentioned here is Nebo. Nebo is the god of wisdom and intellectual ability. They had a whole city that was dedicated to the, the worship of that particular god. Those were their two primary deities. And you remember the deities in that day are viewed as being the reason you get fo- you go forward. They believed that, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians go forward because we're worshiping the right god. And so now he says this, that Bel is bowed down, Nebo is, is in this particular condition now. Here is the here's what's going on. It's a tough one to know what's going on. Now it could be that what he's saying here is that both those gods are bowing down to God Himself, because they both have to do with the idea of bowing, and they are being humbled before God. It could also be a picture of what happens when a fighter, uh, when somebody connects in a boxing match and hits you in the wrong place in your jaw, and all of a sudden you see stars, and the fight's kind of over. And the guy drops his hands and starts to fall because he's not fallen yet, but he's been stunned. And that stun is he's not in, he's not he's not athletic anymore. He's just trying to get to the to the wall to get to some place. And that's probably what's being said here. That what's happened is Bell has gone and what's who has done this? Well the the Persians have come. And he says, The gods that you serve, they they're they're staggering. Under the, the problem here, you thought that they were going to deliver you. But then comes the problem. You see, Bel and Nebo were huge idols. They were big things, right? Now, you imagine a, a stone idol, which is about this tall. I wouldn't want to carry it off the, off the podium. Imagine an, an idol that's 25 feet tall. It's made out of rock. And that's the picture. Now, now we've got to save our God. If you want to get the, the mood or the, what's really actually being said here, I think the best way to get it is to go read it in the New Living Bible as they describe what they try to recreate what's being said here. You see, these gods of Babylon, when the Persians came, were not able to deliver them, and then they couldn't deliver their god because now you're obligated. Because there was this sense in the Old Testament times that even if your god failed, you had to keep with it and you had to take care of it. It's terrible, the deception of, of you had to to keep it safe. It is fact that although the Persians did not destroy the city of Babylon when they came there, uh, Cyrus was smart enough to just let them, and he, he declared religious liberty, so he let them go on with their gods. But they didn't know he was going to do that beforehand, and so the last preparation for the battle before Cyrus got there was to bring in the gods. Isn't that odd? Let's go collect our gods and bring them inside the city so we can keep them safe. Who's keeping who here? 
And that's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. Once you start to serve another God, he can't help you, and then you end up bound to help him. And that's one of these, it's a picture of these poor animals trying to carry away this enormous weight and being crushed beneath it. Now, why does he say all that? What is the problem with Babylon? Well, I want to go through some verses here. Again, we're thinking about the theme. And let's, let's go over and, and look at them. Let's start in um, chapter 44, verse 8. All right? God is speaking concerning himself. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. All right? Now, if you'll go over to chapter uh, 40, uh, excuse me, it's 45, verse 6. And it is breaking into the middle of a sentence, but anyway, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then if you'll go down to chapter 45, verse uh, 21, and we're going to go to the last part of that verse and says this, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. And then, uh, verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is not another. And we could go, we could find a number of other verses here, but I want you to go over to his lament for Babylon. Why is Babylon going to be destroyed? All right. Well, he tells them, first of all, it's because of this. I raised you up in order to chasten my people, but you got carried away with it. And the reason you got carried away with it and didn't treat them with any respect whatsoever is because of your attitude towards yourself. Verse 7, he says this is chapter 47, verse 7. Yet you said, I am a, uh, I will be a queen forever. You did not, and these things you did not consider. I will be a queen forever. And he goes on in verse 8 to say this. Um, now, now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. And again in verse 10 at the end of it. For you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. See, why is Babylon destroyed? Babylon is destroyed because... They've come to the conclusion that they're God. They've come to that conclusion. They followed the, the, the prince. Right? Back in chapter 13 and 14 of the book of Isaiah, he speaks about Babylon again, or again before this. It's in his earlier section. And he begins, off, begins by telling that Babylon is going to be destroyed. And in chapter 13, he says this, that when I get done with you, you won't, the city of Babylon will never be inhabited again. All right? It will never be inhabited again. And then he says this concerning him in chapter 14. The, the king of Babylon, the one who heads up Babylon, this is what he said. He said in his heart, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. That's what I'm going to do. I am going to ascend. I'm going to be like the Most High. That's what the king said. And everybody that's picked up the Babylonian spirit since then has felt that way. And this is part of the dilemma of the human race. And this is why he says at the beginning, you've got to know who I am as opposed... You've got to know, you've got to recognize the fact you're dying. Because when you start to have success in life, there comes a point at which you believe that you're immortal. 
Now, if you never had, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many people have not had that experience, but I believe most of us have. A time when we felt young and vigorous and we thought we were on top of the world. We thought it was going to be like that forever. And this has been the story of the human race down right through the ages. That Why is it we don't listen to what's, gone, what's happened before us? Because we believe we understand better than anybody that's ever come before us. Because there's a Babylonian spirit which throws off and says that I am. And, and no one is watching. And God doesn't, he's not going to judge me. He doesn't care about me. And besides, I can handle him. And we recreate God. And that's what the Babylonians have done. And they have come into a place. That's the Babylonian spirit. And that's going to go right through the human race to the end. One of the great moments of the book of Revelation is when it says, Fallen is Babylon the great. That whole spirit's going to come down. The head of that was Nebuchadnezzar. He's the head of gold. He's the beginning of that, that, that whole experience. That's where God says he, he fits and it was his spirit that begins to move in the human race. Now, what's important in this, this book is this. That God says, I'm going to rebuild my city which is destroyed. But I'm going to tear down Babylon. And I'm going to leave it uninhabited as a testimony to the human race of what happens when you exalt yourself and say you're going to take the place of God in your own life. So I wanted to find a picture. I wish I could. Babylon is uninhabited today. It, was, it didn't happen all at once. If you study the history, the uh, Persians didn't destroy it. They left the capital city. But from the time that the Persians came in, the city of Babylon began to decline in its importance. And despite several attempts, Alexander the Great tried to revive it because he had this respect for the old Babylonian spirit. He wanted to revive the city of of Babylon, and he couldn't get anybody to kind of go along with him, and that's pretty rare. He had a desire to see that city rebuilt and made something, but it just kept on declining and declining. By the year 200 A.D., it was completely uninhabited, and it remains uninhabited. Saddam Hussein, just a few years ago, attempted to rebuild it. He started the process. He wanted to make it a tourist attraction. He built the gate supposedly is still there or has been rebuilt, but that's all that sits there, just a little gate. If you get a picture of it and you look out across there, what is it? It is a, it's a barren area. Now, at the time when the Babylonians were there, the Euphrates River flowed right through the city. But since then, rivers have a habit of changing course. It's moved off. It's, it's changed courses, so it no longer goes to that particular area, but it left the place a swamp. And if you go back and read it, it's in uh, chapter 13 and then again in chapter 14. That's what he says. It's going to be a haunt of jackals. It is going to be a swamp. It is going to be deserted, and it is today. Now, why, why is that important to us? As we finish up this particular section, I want you to think it through if you haven't thought through before. That city sits all the time as a testimony of what happens when men put themselves in the place of God. As opposed to that is the city of Jerusalem. There is no reason why Jerusalem should have existed. It's sitting on top of a hill. It has no water supply. Here was a city that had no internal water supply. 
That's ridiculous. It is not on any major river. It is not on any major trade route. You have to go out of your way to get to Jerusalem. When it was destroyed, what are the chances that anybody would take the time to rebuild a city in a place where there is no benefit to having that city? There is none. But as we read the night, God says what? I am saying this. I'm going to say this. It is going to be rebuilt as a testimony to when, what happens when I bless something. When I bless it, it will be blessed. When you depart from me, you're going to be in real trouble. It sits tonight as a testimony to that particular factor. Now, one other side, one other illustration. That's the illustration of Babylon. They de- departed because they didn't listen to where God was. Now... And again, let me just say this also. I'm going to put this one in there. They had a chance to do it. Isn't it interesting? Nebuchadnezzar was confronted. His right-hand man becomes Daniel, a godly man. And the wise men of Cal- the, the men who were in the court had a chance during Daniel's time with Nebuchadnezzar to see that God is true. They watched his prophecies be fulfilled so that they could see. But they didn't get there. They didn't get there. They had a chance, and that's important in the book. But then there's a second illustration that I want to go over, and that has to do with Cyrus. Cyrus. Now, again, this is, five, this is 150 years before Cyrus is even there. Nobody knows about the Persians right at the moment. Nobody knows that they're, again, Cyrus's name is not a common name, so this is really something. And you can imagine why there are those liberal scholars that come to this conclusion. It had to be written after it because it couldn't have been written. You can't do that. But there's so much of Isaiah that you can't move in history. You can't move the cross. You know, it just can't move. But nevertheless, there it is. And why is it there? Why was it put there? What, what does he say about it? He says, I'm in control of history. God is in control of history. And I'm in control of history to the point where I can tell you who is going to be the person the individual person who will destroy the Babylonian Empire. And the reason they will do it is because I will meet him. Let me just read that. It's, uh, let me get there. Get, let's get go back up here. Okay, verse, chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue the nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not will not shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. This is one of those places you don't want to just jump in there and put your finger down and read that for yourself. This is for Cyrus. This is a description of what God was going to do on his behalf. He says, I am going to break down all opposition for you because I have chosen you for a purpose. And here's the purpose. I am not only going to allow you to be a king and destroy the Babylonian Empire, but I am going to cause you to become the shepherd of my people. The shepherd is one that gets the sheep in the right place. I am going to take a person who does not know me. If you read through all this, he says, you don't know me, you won't know me. But I'm still going to control. And here's what we're going to do. You are going to command that the city of Jerusalem be rebuilt and that the temple be rebuilt. That's what you're going to do. And Cyrus did it. Cyrus did it. 
He became king, and, and as king, he had a particular viewpoint of how you control people. The Babylonians had attempted to make everybody Babylonian. It's, that's why they represent the, the unity of man for the glory of man. Bring everybody in, mix them up, get rid of their cultures, get rid of their gods, get rid of their religions and make them all Babylonians. They're going to be religious, but they're going to be religious like Babylonians. All together, all for one, and uh, it didn't work. It didn't work. Too much rebellion about that. Cyrus came in and looked at it and said, you know what? There's no sense in fighting this. Allow people to have their gods. They'll be so happy with it that they'll be loyal to us. And so he did this. Why did he do that? Because he's smart? Because he's a brilliant... No, he's doing that? Because way back there, again, probably before that, but 150 years before, God said, I'm going to make him my shepherd. And in order to make him my shepherd, there's two things that he has to tell my people to do. This is where my sheep have to go. And they won't do it unless I, I shepherd them there. They have to go rebuild that city. But more important than that, they have to start worshiping again. They have to rebuild that temple. And so that ungodly man becomes a, a tool in the hands of God. Does the God you serve have that much control of what's happening in history? It would give us a lot better sleep as we think about the world if we just realize it's all on his plan. All I have to do is live the way he told me to live in the middle of it. The course of history is determined. He's the one, he said, through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, I am the one who raises up kings. I am the one who puts them down so that my purpose can be fulfilled. And so he uses those two illustrations. Babylon, they, they stood against God and they would be destroyed as a testimony of what happens when you don't look to God. Now, why does he tell everybody all that? Well, that's the last thing we want to note here. What's the last part about the whole Bible? Well, that takes you back to chapter 46, which we were on last, or to 45, excuse me, last week. What's God's purpose? Why does he want your attention? Why does he want my attention? Because I have terrible need tonight. And there is only one who can answer that need. And the one who can answer that need as one man said, is not silent. He is shouting from heaven. He is shouting through the heavens and he's shouting through this word and he's speaking to us. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. And what does he say? Chapter 45 in verse 22, it says, turn to me. Turn to me. Now, what's, what's the thing about there? All right. Later on in the book, he's going to say this. All we like sheep, have turned astray, gone astray. We've gone astray. We have turned each one to what? His own way. That's why people make idols, because so they can go their own way. Idol doesn't bother you. It doesn't save you, but it doesn't bother you either. All right? It always does what you want it to do because you created it. And it likes just what you like, and it, it, it lets you go. But he says, stop that. Now, that's, we got in trouble because we all turned to our own way. Now he says what? Turn to me. Turn to me. All you've got to do is turn. The eternal God is ready to meet every person in this room. Any person in this room. 
Doesn't matter what your problem is. He's just, this is his appeal to the human race. It doesn't matter where I've been. It doesn't, that doesn't count. In a sense, it doesn't count. It may affect my experience on this earth, but it won't stop me from getting to God no matter what, if I will do what? If I'll just turn to the one who is the true God and be saved. Now he extends it from Israel, which is where he's been talking, to the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth. Now, those of us that know the Lord here tonight, you're here because that verse is there, because we have a chance. It's been extended to all the ends of the earth. We live on the ends of the earth. I know we think we live in the middle of it, but we live at the ends. When you start from Jerusalem, we're, we're pretty far towards the end. But all the ends of the earth, look to me, turn to me. For I am God. There he's not saying Jehovah. I am God. I am the only one who is God. There is no other. There's nothing else that you can trust which will keep you safe in the world you're living in and will prepare you for eternity except for this one. There is nothing else. We're going to be looking next week about how he's going to do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. How he's going to provide that salvation. But tonight we want to again remind ourselves that there is only one way. There is only one answer to your to the need of your heart. There is only one answer to that the, the strain of the heart. That's what is if any man thirsts, when you finally get hold of the fact you're thirsty, what do you do? Come to him. Come to the Lord. Because he's ready to save. He's ready to deliver. I wonder if you've done that. Done it all the way. You come to Him and put your faith, your trust in Him completely. Well, let's pray. Father, we come and we give you thanks that your word is truth. We thank you that we have ample proof of that. And so tonight we would come and ask you by your spirit to complete your work in turning our hearts to you. In enabling us to see the Lord high and lifted up, to see you as you really are. Father, we pray that every person in this room who serves a God that is not the true God, whose concepts are confused and whose faith is misplaced, that you will show them yourself high and lifted up. You will open your word to them and you will speak to them. Father, we come and ask you to meet us for your praise and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.